Uh, so we're reading um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust um, to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we've moved this lectern for some reason, have we? No reason? Good. Well, it'd be good if you moved it forward, I think, yes. I'd like to be closer to you. I've got to get that front row has to be in spitting distance. Thank you. That's crying. Yeah, that'll do. That'll be good. Um, and whoever's left this uh, notes up here, um, we are on page 14. It's the centrefold. Whose book's this? Would like to get it back again? Uh, no? It's not Peter's? No, you've got yours? Not Chris's? He's got his? Hers? You reckon? Have a look. Messy writing and take more notes. <laughs> Good. All Christians share in ministering the gospel. Uh, not that we're all kind of the great evangelists who can preach to thousands, but the very message that saved us is the message we want everybody else to hear, that they too may share in the joy of salvation. If you're not concerned about the lost, you most likely are one of the lost. For if you've been found, you would want others to be found as well. So we use what the gifts God has given us to share in the ministering of the gospel to others, working with our Christian brothers and sisters in a world and in local evangelism. But what ministering of the gospel requires, point one, is both simpler and harder than we think. When we first think of ministering the gospel, those of us not given to public speaking can't imagine how we would ever do such a thing. Our minds run with terror at the possibility of being invited out the front and to speak with or without a microphone, uh, to preach in some public arena. Or worse, imagine walking around the city streets with a kind of sandwich board on us, uh, declaring the end is near and prepare to meet your saviour. The, the idea of doing such thing for those of us who are shy and introverted is appalling, is horrific. We don't want to have anything to do. If that's what it means to be a Christian, 
I would already be in hell. Maybe I should look at what it would be like to be in hell. It's just awful, the very concept that I would have to go around doing things like that. But then tell, people tell us, no, no, all that we have to do is live as a Christian and our actions will preach the gospel for us. And when you get told that message, then you move into total inactivity and you never tell anybody anything, do you? You just go on living like you were already and it makes no difference. Or we're encouraged to think, oh, no, some people are the preachers. We are the people who pray and, and give money. Well, it's always easier to give money than stand up and say something, isn't it? And so, well, we'll shell out the money for other people to do the ministry of the gospel, but we will never have to confront anybody about anything. Peter's sister-in-law, if I heard you correctly, challenged the family. And we can be very thankful that she did. It would be a time at which to keep all the family together. But no, it was a time to challenge the family and have them possibly reject you. And we can be very thankful she did. See, there is a truth in the importance of the word getting out. There's a truth that we must live what we preach, that we must pray for it, that we should give to it. But what the gospel ministry requires is that we speak it. it. may not be to crowds. It may be to our relatives in our, in our hospital ward. Maybe just next door neighbour that we're speaking to. But we will speak it. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, where we read of Timothy's task in the ministry of the gospel. You see, we've seen in chapter 1, verse 13, that he had to follow what you heard from me. Keep it as the pattern of sound teaching, of sound words. Timothy was not to be an innovator, nor an experimenter with new ideas. His task was to keep the pattern of words that he had heard and received from the apostle. The words were sound, that is, healthy, true and right. There was no, one, no point in making up new ones, for new ones won't be the gospel ones. And so he had to guard. He had to guard the good. Uh, he had to guard the good message. He had to guard the good deposit he'd been given. He had to preserve it, keep it, protect it. This is the task of the gospel minister: to guard the great message that has been given to us, to follow the sound words that we have heard. Ours is not a search for meaning a pilgrimage in understanding, but the preservation of what has already been taught, the faithful transmission of the old tradition and message that we find in the Scriptures. That's why I'm doing this very exercise tonight. That's why we read the passage. That's why, as I speak to you, I keep drawing your attention to the words in the passage in front of you, because our task is to say what God has said, not to make up what we want to say. That's a different activity. That's not being the, word, the ministry of the gospel. The gospel has been handed down to us from God, not discovered through our inquiries and experiments. 
So it's not surprising when we come to this reading tonight in 2 Timothy 2.2 that we see Timothy is told to entrust the message to faithful men. Verse 2, And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Uh, the idea of that good deposit is something that is entrusted to you back in chapter 1 verse 14. And now it's spelt out in terms of it's something that you entrust to others. The thing that has been given to you, you guard and protect as you then deliver to others. Not changing it, not altering it, but protecting it as it was. It's a message handed on, something that you give to another person to keep and to hand on to the next, intact. That's the central activity. Turn back in your Bibles or scroll through your telephones to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Galatians 1, 6 to 9. Where Paul is writing to the Galatians. Galatia was in the centre of Asia, centre of, of, of Turkey. We're not for sure precisely, because there's different ways the word Galatia is used, but it's in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And Paul writes to them and says, I am, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you him, let him be eternally condemned, as we've already said. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that which you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Notice in that passage, there is no other gospel. There's only one. There is no other. But notice also, the original gospel can be distorted. Not only can it be replaced by a false gospel, because there is no other gospel, so it must be false, but it's something that can be distorted. It's not a message which is different for different people in different ages. It's the one message for all people in every age and every culture. And notice there are some preaching that preaching things that are contrary to the gospel. So the gospel is not endlessly malleable. It can mean all kinds of different things. It means one thing for everybody, for there is only the one gospel. And it doesn't matter who preaches it. Its truth is its truth, irrespective of which mouth it comes out of. Just as lies are lies, irrespective of the mouth it comes out of. And so he says, even if an angel preaches another gospel. There was a great Baptist preacher at the end of the 19th century called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I'm pretty sure I read this illustration from Mr. Spurgeon, although I haven't looked it up and I can't give you the footnote, but it's a Spurgeon illustration. And if it's not, it should have been. That's that kind. He was full of very telling illustrations. And his illustration on this was, he said, imagine as I walk down the church tonight and in the aisle I'm stopped by an angel. And this angel says to me, Mr. Spurgeon, I've got a message for you. What would I say? He said, I would say, I don't want to hear it, thank you. Is that what you would say? That's what Mr. Spurgeon would say. 
But he says, if the angel says to me, but it's a message from God, I'd say, I don't want to hear it. He said, but it's from God. Wouldn't you want to hear it? An angel? And if the angel says, Mr. Spurgeon, I have to tell you this message, what, what, would, what would I say? What should I say? Mr. Purgeon said, he said, I would say, I really don't want to hear what you've got to say. If you believe you've got to tell me, then you tell me, but I really don't want to hear it. And he said, and then the angel said to me, Mr. Spurgeon, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. What would you then say to the angel? Spurgeon said, I would say to him, be gone, you devil. Because up until now, I had my faith in the blood of the lamb and the word of the gospel, and you are tempting me to put my faith in the word of an angel. It's a powerful little illustration, isn't it? Because my guess is most of us would not have responded like Mr. Spurgeon. But when you think about it, you don't need an angel to tell you what God's word has already told you. You don't need to put your faith in the angelic miracle appearance when you have the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. You see how it's distracting you from real faith in the real living God into something that is less than. Even if an angel comes and preaches a gospel, contrary to the one that is being preached, let him be damned. Just because it's an angel doesn't mean you should believe it. Because the devil is called an angel of light, if you remember. An angel of... He's called an angel... I forgot what he's called it. But the word is used of the devil because the word angel just means a messenger. And he has his messengers. So you do not trust them. Now, Timothy has to follow the pattern of sound teaching. That's what you trust. He has to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to him. And part of guarding that good deposit that's been entrusted to him is to entrust it to others. But there's something else that the gospel ministry requires, namely that he will endure hardship for the gospel. Look at verse 3. Endure hardship us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Remember, this is the invitation of a man in jail at the time of writing. He's suffering as a soldier of Christ. For Paul was a prisoner in chains in jail, facing the very great likelihood of his execution, and he's inviting Timothy to join him, bringing cloaks, bringing parchments, for bringing the books so that he may continue his work. And so back in chapter 1, verse 8, as we saw this morning, do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The gospel message is about the crucified Christ, the suffering Christ. It's the message of shame and suffering, and it cannot be handed on without the same shame and suffering being experienced by the gospel messengers. It's always tempting to encourage people that gospel ministry will be fun and will be easy and will be popular but the New Testament always sees it as suffering, opposition, hostility and persecution. 
I've spent my life amongst pastors, and let me assure you, it's never simply fun, easy and popular. It is always involves degrees of hostility, persecution, opposition and difficulty. That's what pastors experience in their life and work. And that's why you need to keep praying for them and encouraging them and helping them because it is difficult. It is a terrific privilege for which they can rejoice to be set aside to spend their days praying and reading their Bibles and speaking to people of Jesus. It's a terrific privilege, but with the privilege goes a lot of suffering because that's the nature of preaching the crucified Christ. For the message is the message of the cross. And the response we preach for is repentance is telling people that they are offside with God and they're going the wrong way and they need to stop and turn back it's not easy it's not a it's not the easy kind of reassuring affirming power of positive thinking kind of message it's not the new age kind of message that you can hear around oh you're a wonderful person you're a marvellous person. There's great potential in you and great power that you have. Oh, that we could just release your inner spirituality, which is so manifestly you. See, that's a load of nonsense. You're a sinner going to hell. You need to stop doing what you're doing, lest God take you there faster. You must turn around and be born again because your whole life is wrong, wrong. That's not a very popular message, is it? That's not even a polite message, is it? Nicodemus turns up to Jesus and says, you're a wonderful teacher. Look at all the miracles you're doing. And Jesus said to him, you need to be born again, mate. He didn't have the word mate because he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't Australian. He was Jewish. But that was the drift of it. It sounds very rude what he says to Nicodemus, but it's the truth. Just because there were miracles that were being done didn't mean that Jesus was speaking the truth. Jesus didn't trust people who trusted in miracles. You see it at the end of chapter 2 of John's Gospel. And Nicodemus is a classic of the false believer. It's not, it's not the message that is easy that everybody wants to hold. It's the message written in bold red and white beside the entry of every motorway. Stop, you're going the wrong way. That's a message that will save your life. But it's a message that embarrasses you and insults you and offends you. If you're a really stupid, proud person, you say, ah, that's what you think and drive on. But of course, if you ever see that sign, can I encourage you, stop, turn around and get out of there as fast as you can. Because that's a message that will save your life. Such is the nature of the gospel. Of course, the message that people don't like, the message that people are offended by, is the message that leads people to shoot the messengers. When you don't like a message, shoot the messenger. And so that is what we must expect. So let's look more carefully at what Timothy must do in entrusting the message to others in verse 2. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Firstly, the message must be heard. That's what you do with messages. They need to be heard. Now, there's nothing wrong with lighting candles, especially during a blackout and in the dark. But lighting candles is not what Christianity is about. 
It's what tourists do in religious buildings. But it's got nothing to do with Christianity, as those religious buildings don't really either. Nor is wearing a cross or doves or fish signs around your neck or on the back of your car or having all kinds of titles, reverend, right reverend. You Presbyterians only got a few. We Anglicans, we got loads of titles. Right reverend, most reverend, very reverend. I went to bed one night as a reverend and at midnight while I was asleep I became very reverend. <laughs> when I woke up in the morning I felt very, very. Uh, and... And another night I went to bed around midnight as the very reverend, and when I woke up, I was only reverend again. Something happens at midnight in our place. It gives you a very and it takes the very away from you. I mean, how totally stupid is all that? Nor is going in processions or wearing special robes. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. The sign of the Christian church is not the cross. It's not the fish. It's not the dove. What's the sign of the Christian church? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the reality of changed lives that leads to changed relationships. I'm so glad you're here today. This is part of our loving, isn't it? This is part of developing love for one another because we want to be a church that anyone who walks in will know this is a Christian church because look at those people, how they love one another. That is the sign of being a Christian. For Christianity is about hearing, understanding and acting on the message of the gospel. And the first thing we must do is hear and understand that message itself. Paul taught the message in Timothy's hearing and Timothy understood Paul's message. It was delivered as a pattern of sound words. It was a good deposit entrusted to Timothy. And one of the key requirements of ministering the gospel is to understand the gospel. We've got a great privilege here in Australia to hear the message. We can hear it in so many ways by the personal reading of scripture, by books and tapes and CDs and MP3s and downloads from the web and by family reading of the scriptures, by Sunday by Sunday, coming to church and having the scriptures read to us and explained to us by the small groups in which we can meet before church or at other times, the excellent Bible colleges we have and theological colleges in this land. Australia is a land that has got rich potential for hearing the word of God. There are people in countries and cities around the world who would envy the privileges and opportunities we have for being able to meet so freely and to teach so clearly and openly what the Word of God says. Timothy's second step is entrusting the Word, for he was to entrust it to reliable men. Point B on your outline, isn't it? The emphasis here is not on men, but on the reliability. That's why the modern NIV, the latest NIV, has reliable persons, if I remember correctly. What we need is people to be faithful. We need faithful people. Faithfulness is reliability, it's dependability, it's trustworthiness, it's stickability. The person who gives his word and keeps his word, even when it's to his own hurt. For the ministry of the gospel is to hand on a deposit, is to pass on the message from one generation to another, is to guard that message as it's handed on. What do you need to be able to do that? reliability, faithfulness, dependability, trustworthiness. So we don't need the brilliant 
or the gregarious, or the kind of charismatic personality, or the great orators, or the great preachers, but we need the reliable, trustworthy ones, the faithful ones. Indeed, the ones who have got great skills and abilities can be the worst of all because they mislead so profoundly. It's the reliable, trustworthy ones. Now, there's nothing wrong with being brilliant, gregarious, charismatic, great preacher like some people you know. But all that stuff is just the icing on the cake. The substance of the cake is the reliable handing on of the message. It's a trust that we are entrusting to others who are trustworthy. That's what it's about. See, when I was preaching in grand churches, stand at the door and shake hands at the end of the gathering. Do you stand at the door and shake hands at the end of your gathering? Yeah, it's, 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 sometimes. Yeah, I had to do it all the time until I got arthritis in the hand from the handshakes. Then I made the worst mistake I ever made in a cathedral. I told people I had arthritis in my hand. That was a terrible mistake. For the next six months, people came with all the hackery under the world telling me how to solve the degenerative hand. And I was given bracelets and I was given medicines. I was given pills. I was given advice. I was told to do this, told that. And what was two weeks later, they came back and asked me whether I'd tried it. You know, it was just, that was a big mistake. And never mention that you got arthritis. That's my clue to life. Anyway, so I then stopped shaking hands. But when you're shaking hands with people, they come out and they say to me, things, oh, you're a great preacher. It's so wonderful to hear you really are great. Then I know I'm a dud. When they come out and say, isn't Jesus fantastic? I've done a good job. <laughs> that was great preaching. When you don't see the preacher but hear the message, the preacher's a great preacher. When you hear the preacher but don't get the message, he's a dud. And so the more wonderful he is, the more funny he is, the more entertaining he is, most likely the worse he is because he's actually not showing you Jesus. The great treasure of the gospel comes in clay pots. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean a preacher shouldn't try and be any good. You know, be as, as hopeless as you can, Chris. We don't want to see you at all. Make every mistake that's available so that we won't think anything good about you. That's not the message I'm saying here. Some would say, I don't need to say that to him. He's like that. No, no, naughty, naughty, naughty. <laughs> that, that's not the message. And I'm saying the really important thing we're involved in is a message has been given to us that we must carefully pass on to the next person who will then carefully pass on to the next person. That's the key. So let me show you in a series of slides that I've developed about the nature of understanding ministers and ministry. Because, you see, faithfulness is a seriously underrated virtue in our society today. The reliable, steady, unflappable, consistent person is always overshadowed by the flashy and the fickle. Faithfulness, more than love, lies at the heart of marriage. See, marriage is not about love. Marriage is about faithfulness. Husbands are to love their wives, wives are to submit to their husbands, both of them are to be faithful to each other and faithful to their promises. Now, here we got up here. Look what we have here. I want you to understand the minister. Now, wait a minute, when I use minister, I'm not talking about Chris and John, I'm talking about your Sunday school teachers, I'm talking about your youth group leaders, I'm talking about your beach mission leaders, I'm talking about any Christian who's going to minister. To understand what is required of ministers... They need to have the knowledge of God in order that the minister may 
use his competencies, his gifts, his abilities, right? But look inside the minister with the next slide because inside the ministry, the knowledge of God leads to the minister and that then, next one, leads him to use his competencies. But what's inside the blue box? The next one, it's his convictions and his character. That is, the knowledge of God gives you your convictions, what you believe and convicted of and hold to. And those convictions change your character, how you live, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And as, you'll notice the arrow goes both way there, as your character develops, so you develop your convictions. Convictions and character bounce back and forward. You see, if you're an adulterer, then you look at the Bible that talks about you shall not commit adultery and say, well, it doesn't really mean that, does it? But if you've renounced adultery, then you'll say, yes, it does mean that. The way you live affects the way you read the Bible. The way you read the Bible affects the way you live. It bounces back and forward. And so by the knowledge of God, we gather our convictions and character, and that's how we use our competencies. But that's not how the world thinks. The world thinks, next slide, you've got your gifts, your aptitudes and your abilities, and so, next slide, you use the competencies. And they leave out the knowledge of God and convictions and character. So when they're looking for a new president of America, they say, well, look at his gifts, look at his aptitudes, look at, his, look at her gifts, her gifts, uh, and see she could run the country well, he could run the country well. You've got to worry about America, haven't you? 330 million people and the best two alternatives are the ones they've come up with. Nothing wrong with that country. <laughs> but they're just looking from gifts to competencies. And a lot of Christians do that too. They say, oh, he's really good with children. We should make him a Sunday school teacher. Oh, she's terrific with teenagers. We should get them to run the youth fellowship. Mistake. Big mistake. Fundamental mistake. Or we say, oh, you know, we're looking for a new minister. You're not going to leave you. No. But the day he falls under the bus. We're looking for a new minister. What are we looking for? Oh, that man, he's a great preacher. I tell you, when he speaks, you just listen for the whole hour and a half he speaks. He's terrific. He's wonderful. He's marvellous. He's got great gifts and he can really pull it off well. You're going to get a, a false prophet that way. That's not what you've got to look for. You see, the gifts and the aptitudes, next slide, have to be taken into the knowledge of God, into your character and convictions, and then to your competencies. Uh, school teachers. You've got a Christian school. The key thing of a Christian school is Christian teachers. If you haven't got Christian teachers, you haven't got a Christian school. What's the key thing about Christian teachers? Or oh, they really know their subjects and they can communicate well. No. They are convinced of the truth of the gospel and are changed in their heart and minds. And their ability to teach their subject well comes through that into the classroom. Now, they're harder to find, those teachers, aren't they? But when you find them, they're worth their weight in gold. <laughs> they are what make a school a Christian school. But most people searching for the teachers just go out here all the time. <laughs> when what you need to do is to take it back to the knowledge of God, into the person of character and convictions. And the great worry 
things like electing pre presidents of America, the character is so flawed in both those candidates. In all the candidates, the character is flawed. But character is the heart of the task they've got to do. And that's the case with all ministries of the gospel. Don't fall under buses or trams. But entrusting, thank you for that, if we kind of blank the slide out then. I think I finished that whole lot, didn't I? What's the next one do? No? The next one, yeah, there's where. But entrusting the message is to faithful men who will be able to teach. There is a competency, you see. Able to teach. For the message is not to finish in any nation or in any generation, but always to be passed on to the next nation, to the next generation, to the people unreached, to the people yet unborn. And so we hand it on to others who will be able to teach others. What makes them able to teach? Two things. One, they've been entrusted with a message. Two, they're reliable. That won't make you able to teach. That you are a reliable person who has the message. For all of us can and do and will teach. We'll teach our children. We'll teach our grandchildren. We'll teach our friends who ask us and our neighbours with whom we speak. We all teach. Oh, we may not be able to teach everything in the, 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 the deep bowels of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or something or other, but we will teach. See, the problem that parents have is the children always learn from us. And have you noticed they always learn the worst things? They learn those straight away. You have to work to get them to teach them the best things about you. But we will teach them. And we are able to teach the gospel if we have the gospel entrusted to us and if we are reliable and therefore faithfully teach it. And as we go in life, we're to be faithful to the message that we've been taught, reliably explaining Christ to whomever will listen. But the key to that ability lies in the being entrusted with a message, in other words, being converted, and being the faithful person who won't change it, but will reliably, trustworthy, in a trustworthy fashion, communicate it to the other. Now, some of us will have hundreds of opportunities. Others will just get one or two opportunities. But all of us will have relationships where we can faithfully explain the gospel to others and teach the gospel to others. Lois and Eunice taught this faith to Timothy. Their faithfulness to the gospel was critical. And so the first concludes with the phrase, the word, others. Each generation, each group needs to teach with the intention that students will become teachers. When you make disciples, you make disciples who will make disciples. You can't be like the disciples and not disciple other people. We are making disciple-making disciples. It's always to be handed on in every generation. The Gospels are battened to be passed on like in a relay race from generation to generation of Christians. Cole Marshall wrote a very good book some time ago called passing the baton 
It's a handbook of ministry apprenticeship. It actually came out as part of the ministry training strategy or ministry strategy of which uh, John mentioned uh, in question time with me this afternoon while the ladies were being thoroughly and properly educated downstairs. Blessed and holy are you who went downstairs and weren't misled up here. But the ministry training strategy is all about passing the baton on from one generation to another. 2 Timothy 2.2 is the kind of text and, and of the whole movement. But just as the ministry of the gospel involves entrusting the gospel to others, it also involves suffering. And thus we have examples of those who suffer for their cause. In Timothy, in verse 3, endure hardship with us like a good soldier. And so he gives three actual examples. Firstly, the soldier, who will seek to please his commanding officer and will not be distracted into civilian pursuits, but work consistently for his leaders. There's more to life than hobbies by which we are distracting bored minds. And in war, there is a concentration of mind and activity that overcomes the distraction of unimportant things. Hey, there's nothing wrong with a hobby. There's nothing wrong with watching a football game. But if you spend all your life going to football games, what a boring, silly life you've got. It really doesn't matter who won the grand final 12 years ago. My guess is, except for the weirdo, fanatic in this room, you couldn't tell me. Some of you even have difficulty remember which year 12 years ago. 2016 minus 12 takes me to, where's my calculator? Uh, it doesn't matter. And do you think it'll matter who wins this year? Not really. <laughs> Especially as my teams have all been beaten. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's not the meaning and purpose of life. It's an entertainment. It's an enjoyment. But Put it in its perspective. If you're on duty as a soldier, your football team doesn't matter. No distractions matter. The priority of the gospel that endures suffering and avoids distractions is illustrated by a soldier. Secondly, is illustrated by the athlete who competes but restricts his competition to the rules of the game. He will not cheat to win. He will not avoid the hard bits of the athletic competition for the sake of an easy bits that may give him quick results. It's like being on a marathon race and kind of nicking off halfway along the road and joining the race later on. You can't do that. He will reliably, faithfully complete the exercise that is before him. And then there is the farmer. For him, verse 6, it's the hard-working farmer who ought to receive the first share of the crops. Uh, there is a 19th century Jesuit poet that I liked reading. I don't normally go in for reading Jesuits. Well, I do because I read people I disagree with. But it's not that I love the Jesuits, but Gerard Manley Hopkins observed some very interesting things. One of them he observed was about sheer plod. As a city dweller, this is a verse I like because it's got nothing to do with a city. He says that sheer plod makes ploughed down sillion shine. When I read that, I thought, what on earth is he talking about? No idea. Cillian means soil. Sheer plod makes the soil shine. What do you mean soil shines? Well, you go out in the country and look at the field that has been ploughed, plod, ploughed, and you will see all the soil has a sheen on it. 
It's black soil, but it's bright in the sun. It's a real shine that comes upon the soil that has been ploughed. Because as the plough goes through the soil, it presses it so that it has a hard surface. And the hard surface means that the whole field looks bright and silver, though it is black soil. How did this beautiful thing, this beautiful field of bright silver come about? By sheer plod, one step after another, pushing the plough through the earth. That is how you wind up with the magnificence of a field bright and brilliant in the sunshine. Sorry, you have to explain poetry. It kind of loses it, doesn't it? But there you are, sheer plod made ploughed down silly and shine. Is a verse I learnt in childhood. Oh, a young man, when I didn't want to plod on anything. I wanted instant results, immediate satisfaction. And this Jesuit poet taught me, no, sheer plod is what makes the soil shine. There's no quick fix for the farmer. There's just the long-term task of consistently day in, day out, working hard that under God will bring results. So it is with the ministry of the gospel. It's the sheer hard work, the persistent application of oneself like the soldier, like the athlete, like the farmer that brings results. I want Melbourne converted tomorrow. Any Christian person wants that. <laughs> That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? And God could do it, couldn't he? There's no promise he's going to. And there's no promise that results are going to be ever instant or quick like that. What we're told is you keep preaching the gospel. In season, out of season. You keep preaching the gospel. And God, in God's good time, will bring the results that God intends to bring. Nothing more, nothing less. In the meantime, keep preaching the gospel. Keep working at it. Week in, week out. Here's the passage then is the strategy for Christian ministry, the gospel ministry. It's not quick. It's not flashy. It's not fashionable. It's not celebrity. Always scared of celebrity preachers. Gives me the creeps when preachers become celebrities because it doesn't sound right to me somewhere along the lines. Not, it doesn't create that kind of celebrity. It's the long-term hard slog in the face of opposition and of difficulty that's strengthened by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that by the power of God we hear and understand the message and then faithfully pass it on to others especially faithful others who will be able to pass it on to yet others. Pressing on week in, week out, year in, year out, as we pass on the message unchanged, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution, not distracted by the things of this world, but pressing on week in, week out, doing it. Think to church, friends. Sunday morning comes, best day of the week, best moment of the day. And you think, oh, church again. It's the same as last week, same as next week. Think of the poor minister. He comes along Sunday morning. There, 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 except that family's not there. This one's on holidays, that one's away. 
Numbers are down. It's cold. Wonder who's going to turn up. Week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. Nothing very glamorous in this, is there? No great high points that you can point to. Just the continual, consistent work of the gospel. But over time, God brings his blessings and you see the church and the congregation grow and develop. And You had this camp two years ago, didn't you? How many were here? There you go. It's happening. <laughs> but not so, whoa, look at that. No, no, you actually have to stop and count to see it. But over time, it happens. You've been with us 14 years? 14 years. It's a long time. Some of you over there, 14 years, a lifetime, isn't it? <laughs> huh? A long time. <laughs> and yet, it's by the persistence of the teaching of the word of God, week in, week out, year in, year out, that slowly the family of God grows. New members are born, congregation develop, and some go on into glory as well. That is the nature of church life. That is the nature of the world we're in. The athlete, the soldier, the farmer. Verse 7 Think about it, and God will give you understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you for those who laboured over us and who taught us, even when we were willful and sinful and wouldn't listen to them sometimes, Father. We thank you that they've broken through with your message, your message of salvation. We thank you, Father, for those who taught us, taught us as children or as teenagers, taught us when we first became Christians, for those who opened the scriptures to us and carefully got us to be reading it for ourselves. We thank you, Father, for those who labour amongst us even now, for the elders of our congregation and especially our teaching elders, for John and for Chris and for all who are engaged in leading our congregational life. We thank you, Father, for their faithfulness for their trustworthiness, for their reliability. We thank you that they are men that we can put our trust in because your spirit has been at work in them to make them trustworthy men. And we do pray, Father, that you would continue to bless us with trustworthy leaders. But, Father, we also pray that you would make us trustworthy people, that as we have received your message of salvation, we would faithfully share it with others, hand it on to others, entrust it to others, that they too might know salvation, and even more, that they too may trustworthily hand it on to yet others of whom we do not know, that the word of the Lord may continue on unhindered by our untrustworthiness, but faithfully kept and restored, guarded and handed on by our trustworthiness. And we pray for this faithfulness in our leaders and in ourselves. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great faithful one himself. Amen.